Okay, thank you very much. Thank you so much for coming, and please can we start uh, with a huge round of applause, whooping and cheering to welcome the final session of Philia 2019. <laughs> a few personal thank yous. Uh, she can't hear us because of course she's on the phone dealing with yet more issues but please can we hear it for Lisa Marie. <laughs> and also of course for the rest of the Philia team and all the stall holders and all the people working here at this fantastic venue. into mildly boring administrative uh, issues and say that there is a lost property box down at the Philia front desk. Uh, if you've lost something in this conference, please go and find it. Uh, in particular, if anybody is friends with Mary Mason, I've got her train tickets home. And, uh, oh, are you here? Oh, thank goodness. We found you. <laughs> without the tickets, so emergency run to the train station. Thank goodness we found her. Um, yes, so for those of you who don't know, my name is Kate Smurthwaite and I've hosted or co-hosted uh, Philia, or as it was previously known, Feminism in London, since the very first year that it happened, year in and year out of last year, I decided that would be my last year and I would move on to new projects and make space for new voices and I was quite happy and content in that decision until in March of this year I was booked to perform my one-woman comedy show at a pub in London and they said well you're cancelled we can't possibly put you on apparently you're involved in that affiliate conference <laughs> and apparently there are many people in the room who have different opinions to each other I, it seems radical I know but I was like, why would I go to a conference where I agree with everyone? Like, that's the whole point. I want to go and hear other people's viewpoints and their stories. And, um, and also, if you want to police the right of women to be in the same room as someone who has a different opinion, I feel you should start at the top and accept the fact that I have been on Katie Hopkins' radio show. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that nobody in this room is a problem on the scale that that woman is a problem. So, um... And it, and, and so I'm here for two reasons. Firstly, I wanted to make it clear to those people who think that they can silence women and bully women in that way, that I thought if I don't show up for Philia, they'll think that I've been cowed by their behaviour, and I'm not going to freaking do that. <laughs> and secondly, I thought it would be an opportunity to make a point about what I sometimes call the problematising of women. This idea that women have to say and do everything perfectly in line with your views or your opinions, or otherwise they must be entirely cast out and banned and relegated. The idea that women aren't allowed to have different opinions, that we aren't allowed to treat women as whole individuals and go, look at all the great work they're doing. Does it really matter if we've found a badly worded tweet from 1983? No, it doesn't. That's not what matters, especially when we're talking about women as in the case of so many women here at the conference who've spoken, but also so many of you here in, in, in the watching gallery, in the, in the other side of participating, who I know do absolutely incredible things and should be really, really proud of yourself and shouldn't feel in the slightest 
the need to get bogged down in worrying about whether you've been entirely perfect in every aspect of your life because let me tell you, you don't need to be perfect, you need to be brilliant and you are brilliant, every last one of you. about deciding that I would come and say hello at this year's conference is it gives me a chance to tell you what happened on my way home from last year's conference. On my way home from last year's conference I got on a train uh, from Manchester back to London and I guess I was a little fired up as I suspect many of us are at this point in the weekend and I got on the train and there was a young woman sat a few rows down from me and I stopped later a guy got on, clearly a little bit drunk, and sat down next to her and started harassing her, demanding to know her name, demanding her telephone number, asking her, frankly, very awkward questions about her ethnic background that we did all not need to hear her interrogated with. And I figured, what the hell, I'm saying something. So I, I, had, a, I had a go at him, and he got very angry and called me a number of things, including at one point a Tory, which was a surprise. <laughs> It's always those ones that hurt the most, I find. <laughs> but I was not in the mood to let these things slide, so I went on my phone, I contacted the British Transport Police, I made it clear that there was an incident going on. At this stage, it had got to the point of, uh, of, of pushing and shoving, and it had gotten quite aggressive. And sure enough, we got to Stoke-on-Trent, and the doors of the train did not open. And then when they did open, the British Transport Police piled onto my carriage and found this guy and arrested him. He did try to make an escape, but he had very considerately had a very large and very distinctive tattoo put right across the back of his neck. Uh, which was very kind of him when it came to identifying him for police purposes. And I had to sit at Stoke-on-Trent station for another hour and a half and give a statement. And there was a lot of general nuisance. And at the end of all that, they told me, well, the thing is, if you're the only person who gives a statement, we probably can't do anything. And we haven't heard from anybody else on the train. And the woman who was being harassed, she didn't seem to want to say anything. So it'll probably end here, but thank you for at least reporting the crime. And I left it there, and I forgot about it. And they rang me a month later, and they said, somebody else on the train came forward. <laughs> wasn't the woman who was being harassed because when she was being harassed he asked for her name and, and we all heard it. In fact I know the name of the woman who reported because there was a fairly understandable administrative error. Uh, she's also called Kate. <laughs> and I don't know who she is. Uh, I have no idea who she is. She was an other woman sat on that train carriage who by the time she got back to London thought what the heck I'll go online and I'll say to the British Transport Police that I witnessed this incident and they went to court and uh, he was convicted of uh, being drunk and disorderly on the train and he was sentenced to some fine and some community service um, that I'm sure we probably think isn't enough, but the point is, something actually happened. And so if you take nothing else away from this conference, remember that fire that you feel you know, in your belly right now from hearing all these amazing speakers and all the incredible stories you've heard about and all the times you've thought, we should do something about that, we should do something, we should fix that, we can change that. Hang on to that and keep that spark there and keep being the person who goes, I'm going to kick back, I'm not going to take this, I'm going to push back against that because once in a while you might think that you're sat 
four rows down on a train doing absolutely sod all, but in fact, you might be just that one person who ends up making a real, real difference. And we have got an amazing lineup of speakers. Uh, I mean, I can't be trite and go, who've all made a real difference, but you know what I mean. Um, uh, this year really, really is the last time I'm going to speak at Philia. I'm going to get back on. I have got, incidentally, before I start introducing people, I am touring my solo show. I, if you know a great venue um, that would like to put it on, uh, it's called Bitch, and it's about the word bitch and my efforts to reclaim it backslash feel get rid of it from my life and about the way that women are treated about double standards and it's full of jokes because I am actually a comedian contrary to what Twitter says <laughs> so we're going to hear from a number of incredibly uh, I say empowering inspiring a, a number of incredibly brilliant women um, talking about all kinds of things that are going on around the world and I'm really delighted to have such an amazing lineup of people to introduce to you. Um, what we're going to do first of all, I, I, I won't give a big plan of what's going on ahead, sit back, it's going to be mind-blowing, take my word for it. Um, what we're going to do first of all uh, is just have a quick word from uh, Charlotte Sands, who is from the history of the women's liberation, and she's just going to appeal to you to, t to bring your stories in to be a part of her project, so Charlotte, I'll let you explain uh, what you're going to do. Right, thanks, Kate. Um, yes, my name's Charlotte Sands, and I am one of a um, group of women, a collective of women, currently based in London. And we were all involved in the history of, um, we were all involved in the women's liberation movement in the 1970s, 1980s, and the beginning of the 1990s. And because you may be aware that 2019 is the 50th anniversary of the first um, women's liberation groups formed in the UK, and next year, 2020, is the 50th anniversary of the very first Women's Liberation Conference, which was at Ruskin in Oxford in um, 1970. So, um, I know there are a number of women um, here who, have, um, who, were, um, who went to that conference and who were involved in some of the earliest Women's Liberation groups, and certainly quite a few who are involved in um, women's groups in the 70s and 80s. We want to hear your stories. We, were, we would like you to come forward and, um, and, and share your stories with us. We can either come to you and record, um, um, record an, um, an interview, or we invite you to share your stories with us in writing. And we're in the process of constructing a website um, which should be going live in the next um, three months. And um, we, want to, we want to really try and ensure that the voices of all the grassroots women, all the many, many thousands of women who are involved in the women's liberation movement get heard. We know that there have been some um, <coughs> history compilations com compiled already, but one of the things we've noticed is that, that they seem to have focused on quite a small pool of women, women who've, um, <coughs> who are already quite well known through having written books and things like that, whereas we want to reach out much, much further, much wider to um, encompass all the many very different women who um, have been involved in feminist activism over the years. So you may have seen me running around conference with these orange leaflets. Do um, take one away with you, have a read through, and do get in touch with us at the email address at the bottom, which is um, 
howl at howl-uk.org um, and howl, as you've probably worked out, stands for History of Women's Liberation. Thank you very much. Right, and now I'm going to introduce to you the first of our closing session speakers. Uh, Sharina Lee Satie is a local poet from right here in Bradford, and she writes poetry based on her own experience and her own life. Uh, she's published three books called Testing Times, Broken Chains, and Unapologetic, and she's going to read one of our poems for you at the start of this session. Her books are also for sale in the far corner over there. So if you enjoy her poem, please buy one of those on the way out. Please give a very warm welcome to Sharina Lee Sassi. I'd just like to say thank you to Lisa Marie before I start my poem, because she's been so supportive on encouraging me to come here today um, and amplifying my voice and the voices of women today. So I'd like to say thank you to her. The poem I'm going to share is called Women of This Earth. We once were a cluster of cells, clinging deep into the lining of our mother's womb. It was her soft, endless echoes we first heard, her every loving word, it was her voice. Life started with her, with every woman on this earth. Shouldn't we be the ones in power? After all, we are the ones who give birth. It is through a woman that our lives were created. Every blood cell gathered, her body perfected us and protected us from every mortal thing. We spread our essence in every season and plant seeds of new beginnings in spring. We are worth more than we are given credit for, for we have the power to restore humanity and peace. Because women are the healers and the soul receivers, the nature lovers, the feminists, the artists, and we have to raise our voices. Otherwise, man will always benefit from our silence. We have to scream from the top of our lungs. We will not tolerate domestic violence. We will not stay silent. We will keep talking, we will keep roaring so every one of our voices are heard. And that change is bestowed through our actions and upon every screen word. A woman's body is her body to dress it as she pleases. Her breasts are the very breasts that fed you at birth. Her body was the house that shielded and protected every limb of your body. For women should be free of your curse and free to live in this whole universe without suffering discrimination or sexual exploitation, human trafficking and constant suffering, rape and abuse, and it's not always shared on the news. Some get highlighted like me too, but what about the lives of those who stay silent, who are too afraid to speak out, who suffer at the hands of man-made violence and are consumed with complete self-doubt? For us women need to stand fiercely together, producing heat no water can tame. Women united as one, spreading wildfire, ignited by just one flame. For we are women, strong and resilient, and we grow through what we go through, through the dirt, the shit, the grime, and we climb together through each hurricane wind and swim through every stormy sea. And we women can sometimes disagree, and that's okay too, as long as we keep empowering each other, sharing our stories, our fight, and making sure we protect our own rights. Because we are no longer stuck in our traditions, we are the change, we hold the power to continue rewriting history and help the growth of every flower. We stand together as one. We are the change the suffragettes wanted us to see. So let's stand here proudly together, recreating history. For we are the voices of and for the women. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Sharina. Our next speaker is Megan Armitage. Megan is a student, Megan is 19, and she's a university student from Halifax. And Megan is the great granddaughter of the Bradford suffragette Lillian Armitage. And in June of this year, yeah, go on, let's have a clap for that. That's exciting. In June of this, of this year, Megan spoke at a meeting of Bradford Council and as a result of that meeting, a street in Manningham has now been named Lillian Armitage Close. Um, hello, yes, um, as Kate said, my name is Megan Armitage and I am the great-granddaughter of Lillian Armitage, the celebrated Bradford suffragette. So Lillian was actually born in Leeds on the 9th of October 1885 um, into a very politically inclined family. So when she came onto the socialist stage at the age of 16, it wasn't really much of a surprise to those who knew her. Um, she was a scholar at the Leeds Socialist Sunday School, and then in her later teenage years, she became a teacher and a member at the Little Horton Socialist Sunday School here in Bradford. So these schools weren't really about teaching religion, they were more about teaching children from all economic backgrounds how to read and write. In 1906, at the age of 21, Lillian became the first secretary of the Bradford um, Women's Social and Political Union, um, just a year after the Bradford branch had been opened in 1905. Um, at 21, this was such an esteemed position for her to have, to be secretary of such an esteemed um, organisation. And this meant that she was in close contact with the Pankhursts and was doing a lot of things for the WSPU here in Bradford. The same year, she also married um, one Matthew Armitage and became the stepmother to four children from his previous marriage, so she was very busy. <laughs> um, that didn't stop her though in February of 1907 from answering a call from Emmeline Pankhurst down in London. Emmeline had organised a march for women's rights from Caxton Hall, which is near St James's Park in London, all the way to Parliament and they contacted the northern branches of the WSPU and asked for women who were willing to go to prison for women's rights to come down and join them on this march and Lillian answered straight away. Um, out of these women who went down to London, 50 of which when they got to Parliament started a bit of a brawl since they were told to go away. Um, 50 of these women were arrested and sent to Bow Street Police um, Station to be trialled for fighting in the streets. 16 of these women were supposedly made it through the doors of Parliament. Now, there's no actual records of how, um, what Lillian did when she got down there. However, the people who did make it through the doors of Parliament were given the maximum of 14 days in Royal Holloway Prison and my great-grandmother Lillian was given 14 days in Royal Holloway Prison. Um, whether we know that she was actually one of the women who made it through the doors of Parliament, we don't know. However, at the time of her arrest, her husband Matthew did do an interview with the Leeds and Yorkshire Mercury, and I just want to read you what he said. Um, said, I fancy that you, the young Yorkshire girl who so furiously and determinedly attacked the line of police and finished up rolling in the mud with a big policeman was my wife. 
She is very keen on this matter, and I believe she would attack anything short of a lion in her endeavour to do some good to the cause. Um, so whether or not the woman in the quote is Lillian, um, I think it paints quite a glorious picture of just how strong-minded these women were in their process of trying to get the vote. Um, Lillian went on to have five children of her own, the youngest of which is my granddad, um, Matthew Armitage, also called Matthew. Um, and she continued to be a formidable woman even in her later years. My grandma tells a great story about how even when she was hospitalised in her later years, Lillian requested that she always had a desk in her hospital room so she could continue to write to MPs about problems that she wasn't very happy with. And she continued to do this until her death in 1981 at the age of 96. Um, for her work with the WSPU, um, Lillian's name is on the Suffragettes Royal Honour List. She was also given a Pankhurst scroll and a little engraving of the portcullis at the Royal Holloway Prison, which she so eloquently lost in her later years. Um, and as Kate said, in June of this year, Bradford Council um, said that they were going to be naming a street Lillian Armitage Close in the Manningham area where the WSPU for Bradford was based. And as her family, we are very proud to carry this Armitage name and for her to be honoured in this way. Um, last year, I turned 18 and I voted for the first time, which though poetically coincided with the 100 year anniversary of women getting the vote. And I stand here today um, urging you, all as women and me as a young woman, to continue to vote because of people like my great grandmother who fought so hard and so earnestly for this. And last of all, I hope that Lillian Armitage Close can become the beginning of a process in which empowering, pioneering women are more widely celebrated, not just in Bradford, but all around the world. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Megan. That was amazing. Um, our next speaker is Vandana Apparanti. Uh, Vandana joins us from India, uh, where she comes from an oppressed caste background, and she works on caste and gender-based discrimination, uh, oppression, and atrocities. And she is here, and wherever she travels, she is going around raising awareness about uh, yeah, caste-based and gender-based discrimination. Uh, please give a very warm welcome to Vandana. because my sisters back home, not only in India, but South Asia, will feel empowered after seeing that I'm speaking here and raising awareness about the issue which is happening in those countries. Today I'm going to speak about the caste-based atrocities committed on women from the oppressed castes, commonly known as Dalits. But I do not want to call myself a Dalit because Dalit means crushed. And I'm not crushed. That you can see, the reason is I'm standing here before you. 
based violence is a full-fledged human rights crisis that has been perpetuated throughout centuries. Oppressed caste women and girls faced extreme forms of violence and multiple discrimination as they are considered to be at the bottom of the social hierarchical order, the caste system. The caste society which is inherently violent in nature unleashes violence on caste oppressed women because of a combination of three forms of discrimination. One is the caste, class, and the last one is gender. The oppressed caste women are essentially seen as voiceless objects and are stripped, beaten, paraded naked, raped, and even burned alive. Their minds and bodies are constantly violated. The caste system is estimated to be around 200 and, uh, is affecting 260 million people, out of which 100 million are women. <coughs> Violence against these women is often used as a means of punishment and demonstration of power by the dominant castes towards both women and their community. Forms of violence encompassing physical, sexual, psychological, social, and economical harm are perpetrated against women and girls from the oppressed caste communities. The National Crime Records Bureau of India revealed that every day five oppressed caste women are raped. Various independent reports reveal that there is a rise in atrocities against the oppressed caste women. Moreover, oppressed caste women are often victims of trafficking and forced labor, such as the Devdasi and Jogini systems of forced prostitution in India and Nepal. Although it is alarming, crimes are grossly underreported and the levels of enduring violence against oppressed caste women is much higher than what, what official data shows. Oppressed caste women and girls who challenge caste hierarchies or stand up for their rights are frequently targeted with violent retaliation by those who benefit from the caste system. Yes, our country has guaranteed constitutional safeguards and mechanisms to protect the oppressed castes. But still, caste discrimination continues to be a social evil experienced every day in several covert forms and in acts of brutal violence. The reality proves that governments have failed in its due diligence to protect the rights of oppressed caste women and girls. The laws are not effectively implemented to prevent the atrocities against the oppressed caste women. <coughs> Most women do not report violence and studies show that only 2% of the cases that are actually filed end in conviction. Therefore, I would like to say to break the denial and to show full commitment to eradicate the age-old structures that are the root causes of these atrocities. Caste is not an issue confined to India alone. It is a global issue now. It is not only an issue of oppressed caste alone. It is the issue against humanity. Everywhere we go, the moment we talk about caste, no one wants to talk about it. Anyone who says caste system doesn't exist anymore is living on another planet. Caste is not discussed enough. Caste is not recognized enough. The surnames of South Asians, 
tell the caste they come from and show that they are from the privileged backgrounds. So it is a challenge for all of us now. It is a call for the privileged communities here which I am giving. We are fighting for our dignity, but this is for you to leave your privileges by throwing away your surnames which tell which caste you belong. Let's put this on the agenda. Caste is here, caste is present, and we have to be able to talk about it. Stop caste-based gender violence. Jai Bhim, thank you very much. Facebook, we have a few accounts, 
uh, advocating for feminism and for women on a daily basis, um, all of them volunteering. Um, and as a matter of fact, uh, we've been doing social network advocacy as well as me mainstream media advocacy for the past two years. And we've actually been able uh, to make a change in the Israeli press. When uh, about a month ago, I don't know if you've heard, we have a few uh, scandals, rape scandals of Israeli boys around the world this summer. Uh, one of them involving a young British uh, woman who is right now being charged in Cyprus. Uh, and so this case was a big deal in Israel. And uh, we were always complaining about how the press is giving just the point of view of the, the we were actually, because the only one speaking Hebrew in Cyprus was the uh, attacker's lawyer. And so all the Israeli press was filled with what the, uh, what the defender of the, of the, well, attackers wanted them to say. And so we were very upset about this and we did all sorts of things on social network and approaching press. And about two weeks later, unfortunately, we had another scandal of 10 Israeli teens uh, and this reporter from one of the two major networks in Israel Every time that he reported this scandal, he let us uh, speak, g give a sink, if you know what that is, like 60 seconds of, of commenting about this issue from the feminist perspective. And I was able to go on mainstream TV and say that if a woman is uh, taking back her, her, what she said, that doesn't mean that she's lying, or if there are, like all those things that we are saying that are the feminist perspective on uh, what you do when you're uh, complaining and why we don't complain and all these things. And that was just, one really amazing achievement that we had. Um, another thing uh, that we're doing is demonstrations. We didn't have, before we uh, were founded, we didn't have really a grassroots uh, women's um, organization demonstrating and every time that there is something, there were, there were no organized groups that are going to the streets. And what we did is we, we organized uh, hundreds of activists in Israel uh, to go and demonstrate. One of the major things that we are doing is the Tel Aviv Slot Walk, which is the biggest feminist demonstration in Israel. It had almost 8,000 people last year, and it was covered in 20 countries all over the world. Um, and I'm very proud to say that this is the one slot walk in all the world that is uh, anti-slot uh, shaming and victim blaming, but also against the sex trade, which is apparently uh, impossible if you are uh, sex positive, but we are, you know, both. Um, and so the start walk itself is a very big uh, and successful demonstration. Um, another thing that we're doing is, uh, well, we were backing up each and every uh, women's organization in Israel. For instance, one, one example is, uh, some of you may have heard my friend and partner Luba Fine speaking yesterday about the abolishment of sex trade. Uh, we were one of the groups that were was doing daily advocacy online and uh, in mainstream media to get the public to the point where this law that we are criminalizing um, prostitution customers, um, the public was, maybe 10 years ago, the public was in a very different place and it took a lot of work from a lot of different organizations, but we were the ones doing the advocacy mostly online and uh, and in the media. Um, and so basically any feminist issue in, uh, in, in our society that is, is coming up, we're helping to demonstrate. We've had demonstrations on uh, women's, uh, women's murders. Uh, we've had 
just I just helped organize one last week when I was abroad. Uh, we have it unfortunately too much. Um, and I think one of the most important things that we are doing, same as we are doing on social network, giving women uh, a place to feel that they are not alone and there is somebody that believes them. We have had demonstrations in front of courts and in front of uh, police stations where uh, high-profile uh, rape victims were uh, either debating the rapist or uh, the trial was going on, and we're standing outside the court with signs that say, that say I believe you, uh, which is basically one of our models that we believe victims, and that's one of our main rules that when a victim is, or, or when any woman is trying to tell her story, we stand behind her and we believe her. Uh, and so this was something that gave this wo these women uh, a place and gave them the feeling that there is somebody, you know, all society is blaming them, all society is questioning their story, and we are just standing them and telling them that we are behind them. And that was just one very amazing thing. Uh, we've actually had uh, requests from victims to come and stand in front of the court because they are being sued for um, defamation or stuff like that. Um, and so this is one of the most important things that we are doing, letting women know that they are not alone. Um, yeah. um, and I think if I have the chance to say one thing, uh, I know social uh, networks and the 21st century has brought a lot of bad things into our life. But it is also a tool and we need to use it like any other human technology. We need to know how to use it for our benefit. And what we have done is to take social network and to use this to gather women together, first of all, so you don't feel alone, so you don't feel like the crazy feminist. Like, you feel in this room, you feel, you know, we're, we're fine. So this is what we're doing on a daily basis, making women feel that they are not the crazy person in the room, they are actually the one in the right. Um, and when we are together, our voice is much, much louder. And we are able to do this in mainstream me media and on social network, and we are gathering supporters from men and women that are standing and backing this idea up. And I think what, what we need to do as women is to learn to use this tool to make our vo amplify our voices is the philia. So amplify your voices through social network, it's a, an amazing tool and you can, first of all, you can support each other and you can, you know, change the world. First of all, we've, we've had corporations of Israeli and Palestinian women. We've had, uh, in 2014, when we had, uh, I don't know how to call it, they have weird names for it in Israel, we've had the bombings of Gaza, and we've had Israeli and Palestinian women sitting down and doing feminist discussions together because we believe that feminism can be the way to make peace. I think if women ruled the world, we would not have this uh, terrible war. Um, and I can, I can only wish that, that we would have more cooperation with Palestinian women, and I could only wish that I personally would have more tools to change the situation in Israel, which I believe is devastating. But Thank you so much, Braka. Our next speaker 
is Hussan Mahmoud, a multi-award winning feminist activist, public lecturer, and the co-founder of a thing called the Culture Project, uh, which you may be familiar with, which is raising awareness about feminism and gender in Kurdistan and the Kurdish diaspora. experiences as well as for new solidarities. Thank you so much, Lisa Marie, for your great big heart for caring about <laughs> Basically, we had our own panel about Kurdish women earlier on, but the, just the reason I'm here is to address all of you about the, the very urgent and uh, difficult situation of Rojava that I am sure all of you know about it. Just remember in 2014, when Islamic State of Syria and Iraq, known as ISIS, Daesh, uh, attacked Kurdistan. It was the woman-led revolution in Rojava that defeated all of them. ISIS, <laughs> if, I can, if I can define ISIS in a couple of words, it's the most misogynist, masculinist, rapist, organized Islamist organization on the face of this planet that made rape its headline. Wherever they go, they rape women. And this is why Kurdish women in Rojava, old and young, men and women, they all took up arms and defeated them. While the Rojava revolution managed to secure a secular social contract, a contract that is based on gender equality, ecology, as well as uh, scrapping all kinds of uh, you know, outdated and misogynistic uh, anti-women uh, legislations that was in the Syrian constitutions based on Sharia law previously, they basically made sure uh, to, to replace so-called honor killing, child marriages, underage marriages, rape, lots of other things basically. I'm not going into details. I know you know a lot about, about it already. While they were busy keeping and maintaining this momentum for six years, now they are faced with another fascist dictator this time Erdogan's dictator. He is calling his army the army of Muhammad, another rapist army basically. Now they have the agenda of subjecting even Kurdish children to genocide. They have just used chemical bombardment. A lot of children, women and men and elderly, they have been killed, innocent civilians. Why? because Kurdish people provide a secular alternative in that region called Rojava. It's an alternative that is basically anti-neoliberalism, that we all suffer from it everywhere we are. And that this experience basically provides and presents every good value that we need in 21st century. To be friendly to the environment, to care about the environment, as women particularly, but also to fight for gender equality. And this is what they fought for. It was not only a military fight against invaders, but it was a women's-led revolution. And I am here to call on you, basically, to boycott everything Turkish. It's airline, it's food, traveling to Turkey, it's all. As well as if you are an academic, if you work for an academic institution as well as cultural institution, make sure to boycott Turkish-sponsored academia and cultural uh, activities as well. 
Secondly, I would like to call all, on all of you, and particularly Filia, to issue a statement of solidarity from this conference to our sisters in Rojava. <laughs> liberalization of every aspect of our life, what we need more is feminist internationalism, solidarity, and sisterhood. The same armies of ISIS and Erdogan, who are both rapist armies, who are both Islamists, they advocate only for fascism and Islamic fascism as well. They are spread everywhere in Europe and in the Middle East to basically target every single secular, leftist, progressive, uh, uh, you know, activists and organizations wherever they are. We need to make sure to protect, to provide support and to defend that particular little hope in the Middle East that is surrounded by fascist and Islamofascism. And I would like to thank you every, to thank everyone who have already showed your support and solidarity through demonstrations, but there's a lot more to do. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, that was amazing. Um, I, I, some of you will have already visited uh, at uh, our wonderful conference the um, Testimony Taylor's stall over here. If you haven't, this is a uh, an organization which is supporting Rohingya women uh, by allowing you to essentially buy clothing made by Rohingya women, which is then given to Rohingya refugees. So you'll then be, and here is, here's an example, and uh, you'll be sent a picture of the person who's received the clothing wearing it, and you can see some really lovely pictures there. Um, so obviously Philia has had uh, an enthusiasm for supporting um, the Rohingya community for a very long time, and we're here in Bradford where there is a small Rohingya community and for quite obvious reasons it is not always easy to find women in these communities who feel able to come and speak out but I'm delighted to say uh, that Rabina Akta is here. Rabina is 17 years old and it is the first time she has ever spoken at a conference. So, to talk today. I never done this before, so I'm kind of nervous. I was born in refugee camp in Bangladesh. Many of you perhaps don't know where Rohingya is. Please let me explain briefly. Some of you may have heard of my friend Jasmine Akhtar. I don't know if you actually know her. She's another Bradford teenager recently played cricket for an England team. She was also listed in the BBC News Most Inspiring Woman of 2019. She is a Rohingya. Let me explain who Rohingya is. We're native, 
We are a native community of Western Burma, of, or Myanmar as they're called now. For decades, the Rohingya have faced brutal campaigns by the Myanmar military. To this day, Myanmar continue to experience human rights abuses and are denied citizenship and other basic rights like education, healthcare in Myanmar. <coughs> we are falsely made stateless. The government considers us as illegal Muslims immigrants. Besides the fact that there is historical evidence of citizens of Rohingya settlement in that part of Myanmar. In August 2017, my Rohingya faced a vicious military campaign. More than 740,000 Rohingya men, women, boys and girls fled across the border to Bazar district in Bangladesh. UN officials have described this as genocide and ethnic cleansing. This is about me. My parents became refugees in previous wave of such attacks. This is why I was born in Bangladesh. I lost my father when I was six months because of lack of treatment. from the resettlement scheme and that, that is why I'm in UK. However, our family is spread across three different countries. Two of my siblings, siblings are in Australia. Some relatives are still in Bangladesh and I am here in UK with my mama. This is what being refugee means. This is what it's like being a Rohingya, family members separate from each other and no place to call home. I am really happy to be speaking here in this feminist conference. But to be a feminist, you have to be a human first. And the reality is that Rohingya women, young and old, living in Myanmar other, <coughs> or the camps in Bangladesh are fighting to be considered human beings. <laughs> they all want to be part of you. They want to be able to song, sing our songs, speak our language and dream their own dreams, cry, laugh, love as you do, but, we, but they can't. When, we, when they speak, no one hears them, as if no sound came out from their mouth. They are an invisible community. 
and for decades now the world has been looking and doing nothing. From what I heard, women in our community have suffered the most, suffered at the, at the hands of soldiers and other men's rape and sexual violence in, is an weapon of war for the military. If you read the figures from the UN and MSF, you will know what happened unfolded two years ago in Myanmar was nothing short of the genocide. The UN fact-finding missions report revealed that rape and sexual violence were committed on, on a so shocking scale. With thousands of Rohingya women and girls brutally raped, including in public mass gang rapes, which often ended in killing and terrible injuries. This is how it was. This is how it's been for us. This is not how it was. <coughs> we were minority community in Myanmar, but our forefathers were citizens of Burma. We had rights, we had land, we had business, we were in school, we were in college and university, but everything began to change in 1962 when the military junta came to power. We became fair game for Buddhist men and the Myanmar military. Rohingya people need the support. This is my request that I need to make today in this conference. Please raise your voice and help us to struggle against genocide. Thank you. into Kashmir, what we're trying to do is start setting up demos to um, so people take, sit up and take notice about what's happening in Kashmir. What we're also doing is we're going to be doing a demo next Sunday, which is led by Kashmir women, but it's open to women. It's actually, we've had seen a lot of protests by men, so this is actually led by women, and we want to do a peaceful protest, and we're going to be using our voices, singing, poetry, and um, 
just putting up the message of solidarity and we're inviting everybody to attend. It's on Centenary Square in Bradford and it's going to be from half four to six o'clock and you're all welcome to attend. And that's all it is really.
And one of the reasons, one of the many, many reasons I'm so proud is we have the most wonderful group of volunteers. The women that we work with are just amazing. Could I just take a moment to thank all of those for the work that they do throughout the year? volunteers won't forgive me if I don't mention the evaluations. Please, please, please fill them in. Um, also, can we just have a quick hand as well for the hotel staff who've looked after us for the last year. But really importantly, of course, we'd look pretty daft if you gorgeous women didn't turn up. So thank you so much for taking a weekend out of your lives to join us at Spillia. It is a joy to be in your company. Thank you. So we hope that that will continue. Um, and if you'd like to support us, if you check out our webpage, you can see now that you can become a friend of Philia. And I'd like to do a quick shout out to Lorraine. She knows who she is. She was our first official friend. Go Lorraine! <laughs> But she doesn't have to be alone. We're quite happy to have more than one friend. So please have a look. If you could donate a pound a month, it would make a huge difference to us in being able to make more women, particularly those women on lower incomes, be able to attend the conferences year after year and make it, make it accessible to all. So talking about continuing, would you like to do it again? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a relief, I can tell you. So could you please put the 17th and 18th of October in your diaries and come and join us in Portsmouth next year for Philia 2020. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sally. And um, we have one more speaker to close out our 2019 conference. Um, I, and I, I believe that I'm not, I'm not going to say anything after uh, you finish, so I'm going to say goodbye from me for now and thank you so much uh, for letting me host your conference for so very very long and I hope it goes on to ever more exciting things and I'm sure our paths will cross again when you come to my show. Um, <laughs> subliminal messaging. Um, but I am delighted to announce our final speaker for the closing session of Philia 2019. Dr. Akimas Thomas comes from a background in nursing, social work and psychotherapy and is the founder and clinical director of the Women and Girls Network, working with survivors of violence. And she has been researching uh, recently women's strategies of res resilience, resistance and rebellion. So please give a very warm welcome to Dr. Akimas Thomas. Greetings, troublemakers. How we doing? Rebels with a cause. It's you, right? Okay, so uh, they always say that they leave the, le the best till last. I don't know what that means in this instance, but anyway, I'm going to try to give us something that not encapsulates what's happened over these two remarkable days, because I would never be able to do that. But there is something about, actually, I've heard a lot of pain, I've heard a lot of tragedy, so I hope what I'm going to share with you uh, doesn't make you drift off, um, but it is our clinical model, so, uh, and don't let get, get phased out by that. So there is something about trying to make sure that we're ending with something about, that we can take home for definite strategies. Yeah, there she is. 
<clears throat> that's me when I grew up. <laughs> so, um, I don't want to say that, that actually this is going to be an easy talk because I think it's going to have things that are kind of quite triggering for us. So, I think we need to take care of one another and take care of yourself. Um, I always start with this poem because it grounds me and it makes me realise the enormity of the work that we do. So, I'm going to share this with you. It's been kind of quite an emotional time, so forgive me if you hear me stuttering, because um, I do feel kind of quite overwhelmed with everything that we've been doing over these last two weeks, and certainly for some of my um, panellists there as well. So, <clears throat> this is called The Strong Black Woman is Dead, and uh, the writer remains anonymous. The Strong Black Woman is Dead. On November the 27th, 1987, at 11.55pm, while struggling with the reality of being a human instead of a myth, the strong black woman passed away. Medical sources say she died for natural causes. Those who knew her knew she died for being silent when she should have been screaming, smiling when she should have been raging from being sick and not wanting anyone to know because her pain might inconvenience them. She died from an overdose of other people clinging to her when she didn't even, even have energy for herself. She died from raising children alone. She died from being sexually abused as a child and having to take that truth everywhere she went every day of her life. Exchanging the humiliation for guilt and back again. She died from asphyxiation, coughing up blood from secrets she kept trying to burn away. She died from being responsible because she was the last one on the ladder and there was no one under her she could dump on. She died from being a mother at 15, a grandmother at 30 and an ancestor by 45. She died from sacrificing herself for everybody and everything when, every, when really what she wanted to do was be a singer, a dancer or some magnificent other. She died from lies of omission because she didn't want to bring the black man down. She died from myths that would not allow her to show weakness without being chastised by the lazy and the hazy. The strong black woman is dead. She died from never being enough for what men wanted or being too much for the men she wanted. She died from being too black and died again for not being black enough. She died in bathrooms with her veins bursting open with self-hatred and neglect. And sometimes when she refused to die, she just refused to give in. Sometimes she was stomped to death by racism and sexism, executed by high-tech ignorance while she carried the family in her belly, the community on her head and the race on her back. The strong black woman is dead. So, the strong black woman is dead. But who murdered her is our next question. There are many guilty of her, her, her murder, numerous perpetrators, absolutely, we know this. But she was also killed by social injustice, poverty, misdiagnosis, medication, lack of support. All of these elements are culpable in her demise. Can you see that? You need to see, Lord your Lord. So, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. And I guess that's where Women and Girls Network started. That was really important for us. That we didn't want to just recreate the same kind of services back in 1987. We wanted to create a defiant house of rage. I think we're doing it, women. We didn't want to create functional women to exist in dysfunctional places. We wanted to ensure that we rebelled and raged against the machine, and we're still doing that. It's important. This is us all today as well. So, I'm going to 
move on quickly in terms of looking at the holistic empowerment model. I am keeping you with pictures. They are pictures, so don't let's get too bogged down in them. It's just to occupy and focus our mind a bit. But anyway, but for us it was really important to ensure that continuity, consistency, we're working with the whole continuum of malviolence, we're working with mind, body and soul. We've got advocates, we've got counselling, we've got body therapies, so really important that we had something that held us all and provided that continuity and consistency in our work. So, here is the holistic um, empowerment recovery model. The holistic empowerment recovery model. Saying she, saying her. Can you believe how happy we was when it spelled out her? That's like a stroke of genius. I looked at it for years and years and years, and it was actually only Michelle Springer Benjamin who actually said, that spells her. But anyway, but this is a diagram, so it's not sequential. You know, some women come with, with um, you know, broken heart, and it's really important that we have spaces that are around relationship, or otherwise they've lost a sense of uh, their soul and identity. So their beginning will be uh, around more holistic work. So I'm not going to spend too long on this because I want us to have other times together. I'm sorry that this isn't a bigger conversation. I would love to have converse with you. It's important for us to have feed forward so that our project is constantly evolving. You can see her, May Angela? Can we switch the house lights down so we can see? I don't know whether that is possible. Can we do that? We will. We don't put me in darkness. I can't see. I can't see. Right, can we, can we read that? I'm a feminist. I've been a feminist for a long time now. I'd be stupid not to be on my own side. Yeah. 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 And so, obviously, for us, it's still about those hardcore feminist principles. The personal is political. Egalitarian principle. Yes. Power alongside, not power over. Yes. Valuing the woman perspective. Yes. About radical self-love is really important for us. This, this, maybe you don't you want this blurry, because this always is a difficult one for us to see in terms of looking at all of those levels of violence from from even before we are born as as, as women right up until our death we experience these different kind of, of, of violences we know that they are universal we know that they're global prevalence rates are same everywhere in the world the only thing that changes is the types of gender-based violence that happens so those are really important for us to, to think about in terms of that, that collection, that awful legacy that we inherit and what we have to do about it. And this is also the next slide that accompanies that. So when we think about the physical aggression, threats, intimidation, humiliation that isolate, exhaust, disable and punish us, wow, that's a hell of a lot that we experience. And I don't just want us to think about these symptoms as distressing as they are, there's something deeper, a much profound level of grief that um, survivors experience as well. So we can understand these as injuries that bruise the soul. That gives us that sense of that profundity. I'm just going to relay some of those elements that are not included in these kind of charts about symptoms. So. 
betrayal and destruction of self-worth, esteem, ability to trust, injuries that bring dishonour, shame, disgrace, stigmatisation, ostracism that, are, that affect our earning power, livelihood, full potential, places in society, that affect survivors' liberty, autonomy and safety, freedom and rights that prevents women from freely exercising their control over their life. Fuck, that is huge, absolutely huge. And when we're thinking about relational, we have to think about Andrew Dworkin. You ever read something and you think, Shh, I wish I'd read that, I wish I'd written that, I wish I'd said that. This is the thing for me. And I'm just using her as an example of thinking about our connectedness as, as women. And, the, and obviously for us, we're still fighting for women's spaces. That was crazy for me, but anyway. So those things about creating environments where solidarity amongst um, uh, survivors, about respect, about dignity, about safety and freedom are really important. That's what's held in those women's spaces. Can you see, bring back the love. Bring back the love, revolutionary love. This is really important for us as well. Healing the environments were never meant to be cold, dispassionate places. They were meant to be alive with passion, with compassion and love. We've kind of lost that in the industrialization of trauma. So I'm gonna come back to that point, but those are really important things for us as well. If we think about that most finances happens within relationship, it's quite important for us to, to journey back into relationship, to do that healing, to do that restoration, to do that reconnection. So that's really important for us in all of our services. We have that relational approach that provides compassion, respect, continuity, consistency and care is really important for us. This is what we understand is revolutionary love. Can you all see that? That's, a, that's an important slide for you to look at. A really important one. I, I think we just need to clap our hands at this point. Just to connect with that. In terms of love is our resistance, absolutely. We're bringing now revolutionary love. It's important for us as well. So patriarchal systems are mainly built on anger, hate and aggression. Every time I say patriarchal, I'm going to give that a little kick. I don't, mean to be, I don't mean to be demeaning about it, but, you know, we need to kick it to the side. We're talking about kick out uh, racism out of football. Yeah, we're kicking patriarchy out. So anytime I mention that, we're going to do that kick. So revolutionary love, patriarchal systems. Yeah, 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 women, just do it big, just do it big. We have an incredible her story from the African continent to the ancients and under that potent promise of revolutionary love, which is about our, our interconnectedness, our responsibility for being part of the solution to provide care, support, nurturing and re resisting oppression for all, resisting oppression for all, important things for us. So revolutionary love is not one of se a notion of, of love, purely of sentiment. It's of course from the heart and concerns our sense of interconnectedness and our deep caring for humanity. But it's born from fire and bravery. Courage and commitment to all women and girls who are oppressed standing alongside in solidarity. It's about their liberation and our freedom. That's revolutionary love. 
At this heartbeat of revolutionary love are acts of resistance, the fight for dignity, the lack of surrender, important things for us. And can you see that? The devil whispers, you can't withstand the storm. The survivor, the warrior replies, I am the storm. for this one as well. Women never consent to the violence they experience. They never consent to the violence they experience and they always resist. They always resist is the other thing for us. And I don't mean that in patriarchal, uh, uh, uh. patriarchal terms of physical force. I'm talking about the myriad of ways that women use their intelligence, their wisdom, their intu intuition, their tenacity, their courage to overcome and survive days, weeks, months, whole childhoods that they survive. Really important for us. That they refuse to comply with the will of the perpetrator. Really important things for us as well. And that they use their courage, insight, tenacity, and they are defended and defiant. Not just defended, that's really important. Defended and defiant is really important for us to understand that. And it's acts of rage that is secured that survival as well. You can't say courage without saying rage. No, that was a little bit weird. Look, 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 let me run that by you again. You can't say courage without saying rage. And you say... Network, we found it really important to not just track symptoms that gets us nowhere little tick boxes, depression, blah 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 blah. We're tracking resistance. I want to know what happened to a woman and how she survived. And I don't mean in those big ways as well of, of, of fantastic things that women have done, but I'm also talking about the silence, it's also really important as well. So that's really an important way that we understand because these are our freedom fighters. We can change the world. We are changing it. Bloody hell, women, we are doing it now. It's happening. So we need to have that kind of uplifted uh, confidence about exuberance about ourselves, about what we are capable of. I'm not going to talk too much about this. This is a trauma. It's, it's endless. It affects individuals, families, generations, whole communities. It's, it's language is about entrapment, captivity, terrible things that can happen. But I also want to bring this image of the screen. Yeah? Let's not focus on the screen. We know that. Let's focus on the people who are standing there doing nothing is the important thing about the bystanders. And I'm just giving us a cautionary tale. I love the trauma-informed approach. But we now have to start asking ourselves, is it hiding more than it is revealing? It's a thing for us. Its language is about, still about disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, absolutely been a really useful construct for us to validate women's experiences, to validate women's pain. But also, we're still left with what then survivors, women, having the disorder. I would say that the perpetrator is the one with the bloody disorder, yeah? 
And where were they? They conveniently exit. So that's really important things for us. Why should our women be left with the disorder? This time? I'm not saying I have answers to this, but I think we need to challenge the questions and we need to challenge these constructs as well. So the protagonist exits. So there's something about these kind of labels, about how they sanitise, because we're not hearing about violence anymore. We're only hearing about what's happened. And again, we've got that internalisation for her. Survivors are not broken. Society is. It's important for us to think about. So, and as Judith Lewis Herman talks about, in terms of hear no evil, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil, and the fourth missing monkey is do fuck all. <laughs> Because, because, women, we have to remember this. Survivors' brain is held in a body which is moving and engaging in the world and is therefore racialised, genderised and, and exposed to many forms of power. That's really important for us to understand that. It's not just about a collection of neurons or the symptoms of what's happening in her brain. Yeah, so we need to evolve our understanding to ensure that our explicit intention is to be deliberate and call out violence all of the time. Because otherwise, if we still have that reductionist approach, then we are almost, like for myself as a therapist, I'm just a passive audience to this thing. Well, how do I mobilise my power, my privilege in those spaces as well? Because otherwise, all I'm doing is witnesses and be, witnessing and being passive to the violence that happens. We need to do more. All of our services need to do more. So we must also ensure that we stand out and be called to account. And working towards that structural change is really important. Although I do like the whole trauma reform thing, it gives us a, a sense of that seismic shift from not what's wrong with you to what's happened to you um, and also what's happened to you and what's strong with you is really important. This is for you. June Jordan, you're the ones that we have been waiting for, are you? Are you? Yes! You're giving the revolutionary love? You're kicking out patriarchy? I ain't seeing you very active, women. You was active enough last night on the dance floor. Come to me, a revolutionary love, and a kicking out of You look so beautiful from up here, I've got to say, you know. So, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm squeezing through this. You don't need this. You don't need this. You don't need another model. Women and Girls Networks, we love a model. A model within a model within a model. We would do it all the time. Uh, this is our work about healing in terms of rebalancing and again I'm not going to go into that but just that um, it's really important to have those spaces of healing, we understand. But it's also important to have those spaces of, of breaking the silence, of the restoration of the self. That actually her stories would have been tainted by who she was speaking to. So it's really important that we have this as a cathartic way that she tells her story in her way. That's really important. But for us, we use a South American way of critical remembering. So with every memory is also your site of resistance. It's important that so those two things come together because otherwise women can left, be left alone and kind of quite passive. So that's really important for us. Mm -hmm. Can't devote for that. 
Yeah? Uh, resilience is maybe just a way for us to think about uh, the state not doing anything. I don't know what your commissioners are like, but our commissioners are, oh, but women are resilient. They kind of bounce on through it, really. <laughs> They need services, so that's really important for us to, to understand that resilience isn't just a, a birthright, isn't something that passively happens. The women I work with, they're made of iron. They're made of iron. They forge their own ways. They forge their ways from those depths of places, from those places of subjugation out of that environment. That isn't just about resilience and about bouncing on through. That's about courage, tenacity, and all of those big grunt words, absolutely. Yeah. It's part of our model recovery. We're going to be kind of changing it because we're constantly having women saying to us, um, I didn't know that I was ill, that I needed to recover. Absolutely true. Um, but still for us, there's, an, there's something about an aspiration about our services, uh, that there should be an aspiration that women are going to be moving on, that they're going to be healed is something, that we need to understand that momentum of survivor to thriver is really kind of quite important. And it's that story of hope. And here we have as well, we cannot afford to have a single issue. You are either with me, by the side of me, or you ain't at all. It's a thing for us. Absolutely. Absolutely. <coughs> I'm thinking about Kimberly Crenshaw and intersectionality in terms of, she talks about that crack. We need to understand that we've got a chasm that is opening, that women are falling through into a vortex because there isn't that social scaffolding that is helping women to move on out of that place. So that's really important things for us to think about. Patriarchy. Patriarchy disappears life, is the awful truth. It disappears lives into the criminal system, into the mental health system, into all of those places. We'll even say things like, she committed suicide. No, she didn't bloody commit suicide. She was killed. It's important because she was trapped by the perpetrator. Whilst, whilst the state looked the other way. It's important things for us to think about. Intersectionality is a fantastic resource for us. It's a holistic, analytical framework which identifies the social dynamics that um, survivors are exposed to. But also, intersectionality, I don't know about for you and your commissioners, but they've cottoned onto our language now. No, I don't think so. <laughs> so we can't just use that as a description of all of those overlapping social identities. That was only one thing. It was, it was um, created by black feminist activists. So we need to think about what the value is in, in terms of that tool being a real tool for social justice, for fighting against inequality, is really important things for us as well. So, I'm coming to the end of my time with you. And as I'm closing, it will be about uh, holistic work. And I guess uh, the, the symbol on the right-hand side is scan script for breath. And I guess that's what happens to our women, is that they have their breath taken away from that moment that that violence happens. And for them, maybe it's always a struggle to get their breath back again. So that's really important that we understand about, about breath 
and about the importance of breathing. So that's a lot of our work is about creating that breath and, and ancient and ancient futures is the way that we love our neuroscience absolutely, but also our global ancient ways of healing and how we combine those. And thinking that trauma is always a point of transition. It's a dangerous, the Chinese translation is for um, trauma, um, for uh, crisis is dangerous opportunity. So I want us to remember that. And we need to think about maybe as survivors, as living monuments, as liberators, as advocates, as healers. That's, the, that's maybe the healing cycle. Certainly at Women and Girls Network, that's our healing cycle. We aim to inspire women to be marching in terms of Million Women Rise and to be standing up and standing in their place of um, theory making as well. It's really important for us. So, hopefully you've been inspired to call for action, to kick out patriarchy. You're doing it, you're doing it women. You're kicking out patriarchy. You're giving revolutionary love. That's the next thing for you. Okay, so I'm just gonna start at my closing. So something about, this has been a very big time for us. It's been a very energetic time. It's been a heartfelt time. It's been a time of tears, of laughter. And there's something as well about how we, and certainly working with survivors, one of the things for them is about coming out of synchronicity with their own selves, with their own bodies, and something about how we get back into the rhythm of life. So I'm just going to do my closing with you with a few breathing exercises. If you can, I'd like you to stand up, take some space. Okay, so just do some breathing with me while we're just doing some technical things here. Okay, so I would like you to breathe in love. Fill yourself up. There's going to be a fire next time, so breathe out fire, breathe out energy that's going to pull down patriarchy. I can't hear you. You're breathing in. You're breathing in love and holding it. And you're going to breathe out fire that's going to burn down patriarchy. It is possible, women. And you're breathing in. Love. Breathe in love and let go and fire next time. And you're keeping on breathing because I'm still waiting for my man here to do his thing. <laughs> you keep breathing. It's important. Let's do some stretching. Let's do some stretching. Up, 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 up. Down, 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 down. Shaky, shaky, shaky. A little bit. Shoulders, look. Lean into revolution. Easy, easy. Other shoulder. Lean into revolution. Easy, easy. Up, up, up. Keep your breathing going. I love them. This is you! Oh, we know.